much for uh, inviting me, um, Audrey. I should say that um, I was very pleased to get the invitation, in part because it really gave me an opportunity to reflect on a theme that I hadn't really reflected on. Uh, although, as some of you may know, for, for quite a long time, Liz and I have been, been exploring issues to do with um, politics and violence and so on. Um, as, I, as I was just starting to say, in some ways it seems a bit bad that I'm coming at the end of the afternoon because I think my paper is a good deal less polished than the other papers that have been given so far. It's very much exploratory and it was really me trying to, get, to begin to get a handle on the theme of sacrifice in relation to violence um, and gender kind of came in somewhere along the way as I was trying to think about this, uh, about this stuff. Um, Oh, on the that's point. Is that on? Ah, yes. yes, got it. Um, so these are broadly speaking the questions that I'm trying to begin to explore, and we may well, I think, more productively spend our time thinking about some of those questions rather than me talking too much. But I'm interested in how talking about sacrifice in relation to politics and violence changes the discourse or doesn't change the discourse. So hence some of the questions obviously I've been raising during the afternoon. I'm interested in it as a category that has its origins going back to theological or religious um, uh, uh, sort of sources, um, whether there is a, a general problem with using those kinds of categories in relation to politics, whether it's something we can ever actually avoid anyway. So that takes us back to some of the uh, discussions we were having around myth earlier on. How we think about the relation between sacrifice and, and violence, uh, and I'm coming into this particular paper through Girard, so there's obviously a very strong kind of upfront statement about a connection there. I think quite a lot of the discussions we've been having suggest that it doesn't need to be uh, that clear cut, but I have to say, having sort of dipping my toe into the sacrifice violence sort of literature, I am somewhat... Um, dubious about an idea of sacrifice not carrying connotations of violence with it, and that's maybe something we, could, we can again discuss uh, later. Um, part of this, I think, is that um, the power of the language of sacrifice seems to me to get in the way of actually understanding or observing the politics that may be at work in particular claims. So it's, it's a way in which politics can kind of be glossed over. Uh, and then the final question is this question of whether the language of sacrifice is necessarily something that gets bogged down in language, in violence and in these other dynamics, whether we can feminise the concept. So to really point to, to what John was just saying about the, you know, the masculinisation when you talk about, I'm going to sacrifice my scruples because it's the right thing to do and I don't mind that I'm going to kill you know, thousands of people and so on. If we, can we reverse engineer, can sacrifice become feminised? Um, and the concept of ablation, the idea of the bloodless sacrifice, could be of interest here. I went back to Benjamin's critique of violence, um, and I've always been very, very puzzled by divine violence and what he means in that. I'm still not sure I've grasped it. But one of the key aspects of it is that it is bloodless in some sense. And I wonder if that, that way of thinking about bloodless violence might connect to exemplary politics, to ironic, uh, self-reflexive uses of notions of sacrifice, that we can make some kind of link there that would actually take us away from the more kind of bloody sort of history of and relation to um, sacrifice. So that, that's broadly speaking a range of things that I'm trying to think about. And this paper presentation 
is really just the beginnings of, 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 of trying to think about, about it. And I can't pretend in any way to have um, gone on, you know, got all the way through this. Um, so the title of the paper includes old stories, new reflections. I'm not sure any of my reflections are particularly new, but there are certainly old stories involved in the stuff around um, uh, sacrifice. And again, we've seen all these in the discussions today. So one of the things we've maybe not heard quite so much about is the anthropological tales, which are terribly important, as you are. So he spends a lot of time talking about evidence from anthropologists uh, in various what he definitely sees as primitive societies, and that becomes really crucial. But then he links it in with Oedipus and other Greek tragedies. The Bacchae also plays an important role, but Oedipus particularly is the tragedy that he goes back to again and again um, to try and kind of unpack the relationship between sacrifice and violence as he sees it. And I'm using the text violence and the sacred here, really, rather than um, the more Christian-oriented work where he talks about Christianity as the kind of way to unravel this relationship between sacrifice and violence. But the other story that comes up again and again is, is Abraham and Isaac as well. So Girard is very much within a Eurocentric imaginary, which, within which I would include the anthropological literature, even though he is referring or supposed to be referring to cultures outside of Europe, and he's claiming that this is a, a sort of general set of truths about... Um, about human culture in general. Um, I'm not going to read these quotations out, just to sort of talk through a bit what's going on here. So for Girard, the whole thing does start with violence. So rather than starting with sacrifice, it starts with violence, understood in this very open-ended uh, way as this, this force, which will inevitably take over at some originary point, because of the mimetic structure of desire, basically because everybody wants what everybody else has. And it's, it's, it's very like a Hobbesian state of nature, the way that it's set up. Um, but his view, and he even talks about, you know, what's in contest and women and land and various things. And it was just like Hobbes and the wives and cattle and so on in chapter 13 of, of, of Leviathan. But his, his argument is that... Um, Mimetic desire leads into this spiral of, of, of violence, which essentially is about the dissolving of all kind of differentiation and order. So again, a very, very Hobbesian story. Um, and this is at the heart of all cultures, not in the sense that anybody has ever necessarily witnessed this complete and absolute violence, but that it must in some sense have been there. And he traces it having been there through the rituals, through Greek tragedy, through these various sources that he thinks speak to the necessity of there must have been something like this. And through the partial kinds of breakdowns, the crises, the episodes that have finished since. But you never really get back to anything as sort of fundamental as this originary violence. It's not something you, you, you know about directly. And of course, this is one of the big critiques of Girard that essentially makes it all up. You know, um, uh, <laughs> but still, what else do we all do, really? And as you'll see in this quotation here, the role of sacrifice is to stem this rising tide of indiscriminate substitutions in which mimetic desire, everybody is copying everybody else, and sacrifice becomes the way in which you halt this wave of, 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 of violence. Um, and it... He, he uses this term sacrificial crisis 
to sort of capture situations in which order has essentially broken down, this spiral of mimetic violence is ongoing. Um, and the only thing that will stem, will, will deal with this crisis, is the institution of a new sacrifice or of a, an original um, sacrifice. And you know, it's, it's essentially the scapegoat mechanism. Uh, he kind of borrows the idea of the um, scapegoat from other sources. Um, but he talks about it in um, quite specific ways. So one of the things he comes back to again and again, which but then also undermines, is the idea that the victim chosen to be the sacrificial victim is arbitrarily chosen. Doesn't matter, in a sense, who they are. They are used to carry the violence away with them, and in killing them, you reinstitute order. So in a very literal sense, culture, order, follows from this substitutional mechanism, which for him is where religion as such, what religion as such is, effectively, this kind of substitutional um, mechanism. So here we again, we get the point about the, the surrogate um, victim. But one of the other points associated with this is that the sacrifice orders or controls or limits the violence, redirects it. Maybe it gets repeated in ways that are symbolic rather than actual, although he suggests in a lot of, back to that primitive societies, it's actually reproduced in things like the ritual killings of certain people and so on. Um, so the violence never goes away. It's somehow managed by the sacrifice or, or, or made into something that can be lived with through the sacrifice, but it never actually goes away. And it, it is always, in a sense, possible that it will, uh, that it will return. Now, in most of his exposition of this, he is talking about what he calls primitive societies. He, as I say, he quotes all this anthropological literature, various kinds of sacrificial rituals, and so on and so forth. And as I'm sure most of you know, he does want to suggest that modern societies are, in some sense, different. Because in modern societies, and you can see how sort of, you know, we're back to conservatism, um, or, or more the conservatism in the terms of the implications of what he's arguing. Um, one of the uh, tensions, problems of the modern world for him is that it is one in which differentiations are being challenged. Orders are challenged, orders are upset, they become very complex, you lose distinctions, you lose um, order. So he almost yeah, he almost sees modern societies as being caught in a kind of perpetual sacrificial crisis. Um, it's seeming to become less violent, in many ways actually becoming less violent, they are in danger of a worse violence. And that is managed in different kinds of ways, he argues, in modern society, mainly by projecting the violence outwards to other societies. So foreign wars, identifications of external enemies becomes the way of managing that, that kind of powerful um, violence that still underpins. And yet for him, this is how you explain what John was talking about just now, all that stuff we were just talking about. 
So that's a very broad kind of story. Um, so how does gender come in to the Girardian story? And I think there's, there's something really interesting here about ambivalence and ambiguities that I think, again, has come up in quite a lot of the discussions that we've been having. And we see it with the way in which she discusses women and sexuality. And there's quite a lot of stuff around this. There's a lot of stuff about how sexual desire is akin to violence. So he brings sex and violence together in a very clear way. Lots of stuff about menstrual blood and how this explains um, how women may end up being blamed for violence. Um, really quite strange stuff. But it's also quite contradictory because on the one hand, women are not important enough to be able to be sacrificed. On the other hand, because of their ambivalent position, they may well end up being sacrificed. Now, as I said just now, his formal argument was that the selection of the victim is arbitrary. But actually, what he shows and what he discusses and what he says about gender, but also about a variety of other things, suggests that actually that's not the case. The selection of the victim is not arbitrary. It is linked to um, having to hold, being able to carry certain kinds of statuses. And it seems that it can be either that you carry a highly significant status, as in the sacrifice of the king, uh, which he talks about in various cultures, or it may be that you carry this more liminal and ambivalent status, as in the sacrifice of women or children or indeed um, uh, uh, animals, uh, as he mentions here. So there's something there's something quite odd going on there, I think, in the way in which he, he, he discusses um, uh, gender that, that kind of points up the tensions and ambivalences in his own account, which I think are partly to do with him, but partly clearly also carry over from the stories and from the evidence that he's using to sort of support his particular argument about the relationship between violence and sacrifice and how how that kind of carries over and is in some sense a human universal, regardless of whether you're talking about um, ancient Greece, uh, primitive cultures, or modern um, industrialized societies. Okay, so that's the Girardian story. And as I said, I'm just putting my toe really into these literatures here, but. Um, I've been reading Kierkegaard, as uh, uh, Liz knows, we've, we've been reading it uh, in, a, in a reading group for a while, um, who obviously, the story of Abraham and Isaac in Fear and Trembling is really, really crucial. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm also interested in the work of Gillian Rose, who in her book, The Broken Middle, actually has a chapter on um, Girard and Thomas Mann's Joseph and his brothers, and uses Kierkegaard as a way of kind of unsettling the arguments that, that um, both of them make, and I'm, I'm focusing here on, on, on Girard particularly. What Rose tries to do, and he tries to use Kierkegaard to do, and this I think links to Calypso's paper in really interesting ways, is to bring the language of sacrifice back into the everyday, to sort of um, argue that Girard has um, basically made it up, but also that he is ignoring the ironies and the role of audience and of witness in sacrifice, uh, so that he's constructing a very particular story which puts, makes violence and sacrifice kind of transcendental, a kind of a priori, and she's trying to bring it back. Um, and she uses Kierkegaard 
to do it, but also make some more sort of generic critiques. And this is one interesting one, especially as we had Iphigenia mentioned earlier. Um, so you know, Girard's obsessed with Oedipus, keeps coming back to Oedipus. Um, and what Rose is trying to argue is that what Girard does is to just flatten out any kind of historical difference, any kind of contextuality in making his very big story. And if he'd looked at the Oristyle with more care as opposed to the, um, the Oedipal um, trilogy, he would find there is, you know, what's worked through there is a particular kind of transition from one kind of set of mechanisms of justice and ways of being into a, an, another one. Um, I should have mentioned that, that Girard treats modern law as the kind of equivalent of the sacrifice, so punishment in, in modern systems of crime. So there's no qualitative change, it's just a different way of doing it, but it's still doing the same thing as far as he's concerned. And what Rose is trying to say is, well, actually, no, very different things are going on. But it's not just that. The tragedies are being watched, they're being read, they're later on being commentated on. There is a community at work in reading what is happening here, and you cannot sort of abstract out this story as if it sort of holds on its own. Uh, and she turns from the Greek, having mentioned the Aristotle, she turns from the Greek to the Abraham Isaac um, story and argues that in Kierkegaard what you get is actually a real engagement with all the ambivalences, all the ironies, all the problems of reading sacrifices as sacrifice as straightforwardly ethical or as straightforwardly transcendental in some sense. And that the play in Kierkegaard's text, the humor in Kierkegaard's text is all about trying to open up um, our imaginations in a very different way. And she introduces, which I think is, again, I'm not um, an expert on this, but as I understand it, this is, this is the way in which um, theologians or people studying um, the, the Judaic text will talk about it, the binding, not the sacrifice of Isaac. So it's a different kind of language. And she refers to ablation, so that notion of the bloodless sacrifice in relation to that. Although I can't quite see how you can do that as the ram gets it in the neck, as it were. So it's not entirely a bloodless sacrifice that's going on. But I think what she's saying is that actually, if you look at this, it's not necessarily about violence. Whereas for Girard, it has to be about violence. Yeah, yes, yes. Now, this is a bit of a long quotation, and, and you know, excuse me, I haven't put it up there, it's a bit late for giving you very long quotations, and it's kind of written in, in Gillian Rose's own, own sort of um, speak, which is a mixture of Hegel and Kierkegaard in this particular instance, so a bit tricky to follow. And the reference to Joseph is because she was also talking about man. But it's really the latter part of the quotation where I think she makes very clear that what she's trying to do is to bring sacrifice back into the everyday and to bring violence back into the everyday so that it isn't posited as something outside. And that very last bit, you know, the, the suspension of the ethical, which is what um, Kierkegaard's always talking about, you have to remove yourself from the ethical in the movement of faith because it isn't just about an accepted code of conduct or doing what the community says it's right. It's about a kind of movement that is beyond that, that can't be rationalised and that can't be understood in fully ethical terms. But the ethical is suspended, she wants to say, it doesn't disappear in Kierkegaard. 
and that means you never get outside of history even if you are suspended, if you are understanding faith in terms of the suspension of the ethical. But it's that last little bit, the single one, meaning the singular person, the, the, the struggle of particular and universal, which is the everyday. So the way in which every individual struggles with context and principle and what's the best thing to do and so on in an everyday kind of way. So she's trying to bring sacrifice back down from Girard. She's not trying to divorce it from violence, but she's trying to suggest that both violence and sacrifice are, are this worldly, as it were. They are part of the community that you inhabit, rather than being some kind of transcendental a priori uh, to culture or anything else. So I suppose what I'm trying to do is to set up these two alternatives. And I don't really know what I think about either of them, except I'm not very sympathetic to Girard, but I'm not sure that I'm entirely persuaded by the Rose set of moves either. Um, and here I just wanted to call in another couple of, as it were, witnesses in relation to um, the language of violence and sacrifice in modernity. Elaine Scarry in The Body in Pain talks about sacrifice as in the killing of or the injuring of um, a, a human or an animal um, as a way of um, a, a kind of, I mean, she would want to suggest, I think, a mistaken way, but, uh, but very typical of what she sees as Western culture, a way of making something real by viscerally pulling the body apart you are giving weight to whatever the promise is or whatever the future is that you're trying to achieve through the sacrifice. A gambon, of course, gives us another kind of thing, and this, this relates to stuff that we've been saying earlier as well, in that the point about Homer Saka is that they can be killed but they cannot be sacrificed. And for him, everybody within the contemporary polity is in that disposable sort of category uh, under sovereign power. That's what it means that you can't be sacrificed. So there's an interesting question here about um, whether the appropriate way to think about sacrifice is as a kind of sacralizing move that should be applied to everybody, so back to can you kind of democratize <laughs> um, sacrifice, or whether one should get rid of the language of sacrifice altogether, um, or you know, at least see it as, as dangerous rather than helpful when we're trying to talk about um, politics and, and, and culture. Um, so this raises me questions about, and then, you know, if we go back to discourses of human rights and so on, um, readings of humanitarianism, Amnesty International, whatever. I mean, there's been a lot of work that has suggested that essentially what this is about is a kind of sacralizing move, an attempt to sacralize life as such, um, in kind of contradiction to the Agamemnon view that the modern state is actually about the desacralization of, of, of life as such. Um, and then there's the question of whether actually that move is possible in that the evidence that we have is that on the whole, it's very difficult to universalize that sacralizing move, that actually some people always end up outside of the sacralized uh, community. So it's the question there of, you know, how arbitrary is the selection of those who do the sacrificing, those who are sacrificed, and those who cannot uh, be sacrificed? How are these kind of roles, as it were, distributed? within contemporary discourses around um, the, the, the politics and violence of the modern state. 
this is all questions. I don't have um, answers. Um, but I did want to refer to a couple of different kinds of stories than the um, biblical and Greek tragic and anthropological ones. And really, I don't need to say much because John's paper um, and Faisal's paper, I think, have both kind of dealt with this. But it does seem to me that, that that way in which death in war as a soldier is understood as a sacrifice is still really powerful. And that however much people regret civilian deaths, civilians are not valorized in the same way. So it's a terrible shame. They die, but they are not sacrificed. So there's something there that still, that, that language shifts the value of how people are understood or how their deaths are understood. And, you know, obviously politics of memorialization and so on can, can demonstrate that. It's not entirely clear cut. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll find a memorial to the people that were killed by a bomb, you know, in, in London. You just find a little plaque on the wall. But nothing like the massive memorials that you get for the soldiers um, who die. Um, and then the other example was Gandhi, and, and this is where I think the, the gender thing comes in again for me, and I, Liz and I are working on a paper, and I, I've just been very struck by this differentiation when he's talking about how men are giving up their lives to save women, um, women giving up their own lives to save their honour. <laughs> Um, there, there is still a highly gendered kind of um, way of thinking that, that goes with sacrifice in the Gandhian sense. Although I do think that there's, you know, when we were discussing exemplary politics, that there's, a, there's possibilities within that Gandhian uh, way of thinking that, that might point in a different direction. But the gendered element doesn't seem to go away, the gendered element that's very, very clear cut in, um, in Girard. Um, so this is not really a conclusion, but I thought I'd put conclusion anyway. Um, so I, I think, unlike, I mean, Rose attempts to do this, but I'm not sure she does it successfully. It seems to me it's very hard to reconcile languages of sacrifice with languages of democracy or of the everyday. I think sacrifice does always sit, seem to carry exclusivity with it, the status of the sacrificial offering, the purpose uh, of the sacrifice, all of this is sacralized in, in some sense, and efforts to sacralize everyone always seem to be somewhat problematic. I think as a set of tropes, uh, a language, it is gendered. Um, and I think it is hard to disassociate sacrifice and violence, although I certainly wouldn't want to make a Girardian move and move that out as a transcendental truth about the human condition. But I think there is something built into the way that, that, that sacrifice um, as a discourse operates that, that seems to keep a link there, whether it's in terms of mitigating and controlling violence, responding to violence, or in itself clearly being a type of, of a violent act. Um, but just to sort of keep the options open, I suppose, it's back to that first question about whether you can feminize <coughs> the concept of sacrifice. And this is the quotation from Benjamin that I was looking at, again, in the light of having read some of the stuff about sacrifice and about the, the idea of the bloodless um, sacrifice. And he makes this very famous distinction between mythic violence and divine violence. Um, and I think this is where, in a sense, Gandhi probably is. So we've got quite an interesting set of options, maybe. There's the kind of Gandhi and I think possibly Benjamin there's the, um, and then there's the Kierkegaard Rose, which I think is more what Calypso was saying, where you've got irony and self-reflexivity built in, and in a sense, it becomes part of the everyday rather than 
um, being understood in too grand uh, a sense. Um, and then you've got the Tom Girardian sort of transcendental move. So I'm not saying I know where I rest with all of this. I think what I come out with most powerfully is some suspicion of um, there being quite significant dangers of using the language of sacrifice in, in politics. So I think that's where I'll stop. <laughs>